0: The people walking in darkness were also walking in silence. <laughs> well, you can just imagine there was volume there. Hey, it is good to have you with us as we are in the heart of the Christmas season and uh for some of you, this is a, a wonderful time of year. You love it. It's your favorite time of year and And give or take, most people are thinking between christmas and and uh between Thanksgiving and Christmas, about four weeks, where we find ourselves here is like in the middle of that and there's just two weeks left and for that some of you are like no no it's going too fast because we just got things started you know the music's out and the lights are up and things are decorated and shopping's going on and you're watching these programs and stuff and, and now it's, it's halfway through some of you wanted to slow down because you would like to continue to celebrate I mentioned last week that song I grew up with that talked about that quaint little fictitious town in Italy where they celebrate Christmas all year long and, and how, you know, we know that there would be some of, the, some of the uniqueness, the nostalgia, the expectation, the longing for that. That would go away if you did that. But some of you would long for that. I read this week, that was just a song that Nat King Cole sang. I read this week an article that said the nation that, that celebrates the longest Christmas season Um, And this is known worldwide, apparently, is the Philippines. That in the Philippines, um, they start celebrating Christmas during what they call the Burr Months. September, October, November, December. Which is funny to me that they call them the burr months because it was 87 degrees in Manila yesterday. They don't say burr like we do. But the retailers will start even in August putting things out. And depending on when the lunar new year is, they will take this clear into January or February in the Philippines. If you want to celebrate Christmas, they go up to six or seven months on this celebration. Interesting thing. At the nine o'clock service... There was a woman who spent most of her life in the Philippines and she came up to me after church and she said something to the effect of, I don't know if anything else you said in your sermon is true, but the Philippines thing is. (laughs) That's how they do it in the service. So we know that we we can't celebrate the season. However the truth of the realities of the Christmas story should be experienced and practiced and lived, not just during the Christmas season, but all year long. And that's what we're doing in this series this year is looking at what are these truths from the Christmas story that are not seasonal, but therefore our life. They're called for us to live this. Now, with that being said, I'm not down on you know, seasonal celebrations or seasonal traditions. We have traditions here at this church that we do just during the season. No doubt you have some in your home or your family. I do as well. In fact, there's a new uh, kind of a seasonal tradition that has come into my life in the last three or four years. So it's, it's a fairly new tradition, but it finds its roots about 56 years ago. Uh, 56 years ago, I was maybe three, three and a half years old, and my dad would go off to the the office, and my brother and sister, they were older, they would get on the bus, and they would go to school, and every morning at that point, I would come out, and I would say these words, just you and me, mom, just you and me, and we had this mom-son time, and so for the last three or four years, every December, I've gone down to spend a few days with my mom, just kind of a just you and me, mom time. In fact, this year, I was able to do that this week. I spent three days with her. This year, we instituted this as a new tradition. This wasn't just, you know, maybe this will happen. This will happen every year that we have these times. And when we get together, it's great. We celebrate. I helped her get some decorations out. We listen to Christmas music. We watch some shows, different things. And there's always food involved. And because, because I'm here on Christmas Eve, I don't get to spend Christmas with her. And so it's kind of a little bit of an early Christmas present, early Christmas celebration, early Christmas dinner. So I took her out to dinner. We went to In-N-Out Burger. Now, some of you are saying, well, she lives in Vancouver. I didn't think Vancouver had an In-N-Out Burger. They don't. The closest one is about an hour south in Kaiser, Oregon. And some of you right now are saying, you mean to tell me you would drive an hour to go to a fast food hamburger joint? The answer is no. No. But I would drive an hour to taste the sweet manna of heaven that is called In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) Oh, yes. And it gives me an hour with my mom in the car and an hour back. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. So we went to In-N-Out and we had a wonderful meal. And what I was pleasantly surprised, just like we see in so many different institutions, whether it be Starbucks and their red cups or the woods or whatever, that there's are seasonal cups. At, at, at In-N-Out Burger, they had seasonal cups. I had never been there during this time of year and had these seasonal cups. Now, the cups, you may say, well, that looks like their normal cups with the, with the palm trees and all that. Yes. But you'll see there's these rows of holly on these cups. Now what I love about In-N-Out Burger is there's so many things to love about In-N-Out Burger. And for some of you, I want to inform you, I want to educate you. This is why you come to church. Because with In-N-Out Burger, there are a lot of secrets. There's a secret menu that you can order off. There's secret ways you can have your burger or your fries done. There's all of these secret things and. Now you are enlightened about that. The other thing is that the Snyder family, who owns all the In-N-Out burgers, they've never franchised, very deeply rooted in their faith for three or four generations. And they have decided from the beginning, I believe, that on all of their packaging, on on the wrappers, on the little bags, on the little boats that the fries come in, on the cups, that they would hide a scripture reference. And you have to know this. You have to go looking for it. So when I got these seasonal cups, I thought, well, they have printed new cups. I wonder if it still holds true. So I looked under the, under the cup to see, do the verses, and there it was. And I zoomed in on it, and I saw, oh, it's Isaiah 9-6. This, the unsuspecting mind would not be aware of, <laughs> that normally under the cups, it's John three sixteen. However, on the seasonal cups, it's Isaiah 9-6, very strategic move because while John 3:16 is kind of this gift, you know, Christmas verse, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 is a verse that is used so often during this season. This familiar Christmas verse out of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 9:6 says, "For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called wonderful counselor, the mighty god, everlasting father, Prince of Peace, and while it talks about this child that is born and a son that is giving, it's pointing to the Christmas story. It's pointing to that day when Jesus would be born, this child, this son that would come from heaven and given to the world. But it's not just a Christmas seasonal story because it wouldn't just remain sweet little baby Jesus. This child would be the wonderful counselor, the one that comes alongside and that guides and that guides us into all truth and and comforts us. That's what we need, not just during the Christmas season, but every day of our life. And he would be the mighty God, the one with the strength and the power to help us with our weaknesses and to give us the strength to see us through. And he would be the everlasting father whom we find our identity in his family. We're adopted in as his sons and daughters. He's there to provide for us and protect us. We need that not just during the Christmas season, but every day. And the Prince of Peace, for our dark valleys, for our chaos, for our troubles, to have this peace. So while it is a seasonal verse, you see that the universal principles and the truth of who he is affects us every single day. Now many of you are aware that that verse comes out of a a greater narrative, a narrative that we've even been looking at in this series. We looked at last week that just seven verses earlier... Isaiah talks about this fallen, broken, dark, cold, cruel world. And the, the, the terminology he uses of, is about this, this utter darkness. About a fear-filled gloom. This hopelessness and this fear and this darkness. This world that we live in and, and, and the heaviness of it. And it paints this really, really grim picture of the world that we live in. And then with one word it changes. The one word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, and then it turns. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the verse that this whole series is based on, it gives us this turn, this nevertheless. Nevertheless, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those landing, living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's, it's gloom-filled and it's, it's, it's fearful and, and it's hopeless. But there's a light. There's a new day. There is hope and there is joy. How great our joy! Great our joy! Joy, joy, joy! I'm singing a little Christmas carol there. We have this joy, and it's this this dawning of this new day. You can imagine the people who hear this from Isaiah, the hope that they have, the excitement, and there's this light that comes into the darkness. There is one detail, however, that Isaiah left out. Exactly when is this child going to be born? When is this son going to be given? my guess is they thought it was imminent. Like, has it already happened? Because he talks as if it has. Where is this child? And and yet they would never see this in their lifetime. Or their children's lifetime. Or their grandchildren's lifetime. And on and on down the generations. It would be 700 years of waiting, of longing, of anticipating of questioning, of wondering, of doubting. See, we read this, and I say this probably every year. Oh, the Isaiah prophecies was this, and then 700 years this. We just kind of skip over those 700 years and think 700 years. What if there was something promised to us, to our ancestors, in the year 1322? I would guess if something was promised to our ancestors in 1322, there'd be some of us be saying, I'm not sure if that's ever gonna happen. I think maybe that guy, he he misunderstood because it's been a long time and I've pretty much given up hope. And in addition to that, this new day, this dawning, the world has gotten even darker. For them, the people of Israel, as a nation, they had their identity, but they did not have their independence because they were under the political and military thumb of the Roman Empire. And not only that, financially, I mean, the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires of all human history and the Roman road system and all the things that went with it, but it had to be financed somehow, the heavy taxation from Rome to do all of these projects and Caesar and all of his big plans and his ego at play, and they were paying for it. So as a nation and financially and even spiritually from their own people, the temple and the temple tax and the corruption with the spiritual leaders and the legalism and all the the rules and, and, and the Pharisees and all their all of their pride and all of this, things were dark. And they had waited their whole lives for centuries. Had God forgotten? Had He given up? Did He really mean it in the first place? But God in His sovereignty was waiting, as it says in Galatians chapter 4, for the fullness of time. Setting the stage, orchestrating, lining everything up for the perfect time. And then in that perfect time, The pieces began to fall in place, one right after another. It seemed like nothing had been happening for 700 years, and now, now it's happening. It starts with Gabriel coming to this man, this old man, Zacharias. He's doing the duties in the temple there, and he predicts that he and his wife, Elizabeth, will have a child. They're well beyond childbearing years. They've never had kids. They've given up hope for that. And yet this Elizabeth, in her old age, conceives this one, John, John the Baptist. And six months later, the Annunciation, when Gabriel would show up to Mary and tell her that she too would have a baby, and as as extremely odd as it was for for Elizabeth to be pregnant, it would be just as odd for Mary. She's this young teenage girl that's never been involved with a man, and now she's going to be pregnant, and she conceives. And the angel comes to Joseph and tells him not to be afraid to take this woman as his wife. And six months or three months later, little John the Baptist is born. Six months following that, or three months following, there's a few months that go by. (laughs) And then a child is born, a son is given. Oh, there was this census that was taken and the whole Bethlehem thing, this couldn't come at a worse time and yet it was all part of God's plan. And then the angels appear to the shepherds, the shepherds. And they say, let's go see this thing which has come to pass. And they, they run into, into the town to see this baby. The sign would be a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And there it is. And these magi from the east had seen this star and somehow figured all this thing out and came and asked, where is this baby? And they find it's in Bethlehem. And they come and they worship this child. And now they've got this Christmas that's going on and and then when they take the baby to the temple, old man Simeon, who's been waiting his whole life for this, has been longing for this, he just says, I can die now, I've seen this. Anna, the old widow that's been praying and fasting for decades there, she sees this. It's all come to play, the the Christmas story plays out. And then you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing. It's like December 26, there's no more angels. They don't come back anymore. Oh sure, Mary ponders all these things in her heart. The shepherds go back to their field, they're rejoicing. They've got a story they'll tell the rest of their life and they tell people about it, but they're back in the field with the sheep, never to be heard of again. The Magi, they head home by a different route because the Lord has warned them and they go back. We never hear of the Magi again. The little drummer boy goes and starts a garage band and tours Northern Galilee. We never hear of him again. All the players are gone now. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they leave town. They go to, they go to Egypt. Simeon dies, Anna dies. What about this new day? It's like the whole thing's over now. And there's nothing. In fact, if anything, it's gotten darker, especially in Bethlehem. Because now all the little boys, two years old and younger, have been killed. And all these pieces of the Christmas story are like they're put in a box and back in the attic. And not just until next year. For 30 years, they continue to wait in darkness. We thought it would all be different now. Nothing's different. The Roman oppression is still there. The corruption of the temple is still there. The darkness and the evil is still there. The gloom is still there. 30 more years of waiting. And now, Simeon's dead. It appears Joseph is dead. Anna is dead. Magi will never see again. Many of those shepherds have probably died at that point. But a young 30-year-old rabbi begins to make some waves, good waves. People begin hearing about this rabbi that's different. They they hear about something that he did at a wedding that that appeared to be miraculous. They think it's miraculous, but they're not sure they've had a bit to drink. And then there's people that say that they were actually like healed by this guy. Like, I was blind, but I'm I'm telling you, I can see now. And then he would teach, and his teaching was different. He would tell stories. It was understandable. People were like, "I, I get that. And even though it seems like he's lowered the bar, he preaches with authority that is far beyond what any of the other rabbis or Pharisees or teachers of the law teach. And when he teaches about God, he makes it sound like God likes us. Like he loves us, like, like he wants us to be a part of his family, and like it's not as difficult as it's been made out to be. And then he makes these statements perplexing statements. Jesus, uh, and there's more than one, I mean, it happens frequently, Jesus' audacious claim, and, and, and he would just like drop these little truth bombs and then just kind of walk away, and you're like, what was, what was that? What, what did that mean? And some people thought it was wonderful. Some people thought it brought great hope, and some people thought it was horrible. They were infuriated by it. And in fact, it says in John chapter 7 that the people were divided, Some were saying, maybe he's like a prophet. There hasn't been a whole lot of prophets in 400 years. Maybe he's a prophet. Others would say, you know, maybe he's the Messiah. Some would say, he's not the Messiah. He's got Beelzebub. He's the devil himself. I mean, what he's doing here. Some wanted to exalt him and crown him as king. Some wanted to destroy him and kill him as this blasphemous teacher. And in this division where some people loved him and some people hated him, he drops one of these truth bombs. He makes one of these statements that for us, those of us who've been exposed to the teachings of Christ over our lifetime, we take it as, yes, I know this verse. He says this in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Some of say, yeah, yeah, I memorized that when I was a kid. Vacation Bible school or Sunday school or whatever. Confirmation, CCD, wherever. I've heard that. I know that. Yeah, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about it. If you were not raised with the New Testament, if you were not raised in Sunday school, if you had not heard these words before, and this man, albeit an incredible teacher and maybe a miracle worker, impossible healer, and he says these words, I am the light of the world, that would be one of the most narcissistic statements that anyone could ever make. It's all about me here. I'm not just like an encouragement to the Jews. I'm not just like a little help for for Israel. I am the light of the world. You would just want to say, who died and made you Kanye? What do you you think you are? I mean, this is unbelievable that you would make that kind of statement and not only claim to be the light of the world, but ask people to hitch their wagon to your train. Because he would go on to say, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life wait 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 what you're claiming to be the fulfillment of the 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah that we and all of our ancestors have waited for that's either absolutely laughable ludicrous unbelievably wonderful you're the fulfillment of Isaiah, either absolute truth or absolute blasphemy. And when he would say these things, the people that were most upset about it were the religious leaders, the people who knew the scripture, the teachers of the law, and I've got to believe, and I, and I think it's high probability, and we can disagree on this one, we really can, and I'd love to state my case for you, but I think there's a high probability that when Jesus is making these claims and all the experts in the law are like pushing back, I've got to believe that there's this young up-and-coming Pharisee this rising star in the realm of pharisees who, who studies under gamaliel who is so repulsed by these words a young pharisee in training not from jerusalem but in jerusalem is from the north from tarsus his name is saul now you don't read this in scripture but i think you can put together the points and extrapolate out this truth that it's highly likely that Saul was in Jerusalem when Jesus was as well. And probably there was no one more excited to have Jesus crucified than Saul himself. So much so that once Jesus was eliminated, he made it his life's mission to eliminate all the followers after Jesus as well. So he would arrest them and he would persecute them and he would beat them and he even killed some and he just dedicated his life to getting rid of all the followers of this dead Messiah named Jesus. In fact, on one time, he got the permission to go up north because some of them had, had fled from him. And he was going to go up and, and arrest them, persecute them, bring them back. And he's going to go up to Damascus. And on his way up to Damascus, this is, what I, this is my fabrication, by the way. You won't find this in the book of Acts. On the way to Damascus, he's going up there. And he's planning on taking out all these followers of Jesus and he's probably thinking back to the things that Jesus said. He's like, that idiot. He said, I am the light of the world. Bah! That's a Christmas reference there, the bah. Bah! Light of the world. <laughs> Sounded really good then, didn't it, Jesus? How's that light shining now, you light of the world? I'm going to go take your little lights out of here. And as he's going, just kind of sarcastic about The statements of Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 3 says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, if if, if I was Jesus and that played out, I'd say... I'm the uh, light of the world that you were just making fun of. What do you think about my light right now? Uh, But he doesn't. That's a good thing I'm not Jesus. So it changes Saul's life. He goes from being the biggest terrorist against Christianity to the greatest evangelist and proponent of Jesus. And 20 or 25 years later, he writes a letter to some people who never met Jesus, who maybe had never been to Israel or Jerusalem. They live in Greece. They're in Corinth. And he writes them these words. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, and now he's pointing back to Genesis. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. <laughs> he's probably thinking, he made his light shine on my life, knocked me to my, on the ground, and now he's shining in my heart. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now he's coming to say, listen, this light that shines in the darkness, it's Jesus. This light that is on you, it's on you, it's Jesus. This light that is with you, Emmanuel, it's Jesus. You want to know God? Get to know Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus is the one that saves. That's what his name means. He will save his people from their sins. He's the one that's with us. He is the gift that is given. He is the light. He is the fulfillment. The same God who calls light to be caused his light to shine in our hearts to show us the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is that light. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah. It's found in Jesus. Jesus but it doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story, and I don't think that's even the end of the fulfillment of the prophecy, because his light came to us to shine through us, that he's given us light. As difficult as it was for his followers to believe when he said, I am the light of the world, and that would have been hard for them to, to, to deal with, you know, this whole thing, get past the ego. Is that really true? Are you really the fulfillment of Isaiah? It would have been even more difficult for them to believe what he says to them one day when he's on the top of a hill looking down on the Sea of Galilee and there's all these people that came to hear him teach. And these are not power brokers. These aren't wealthy people. These aren't even educated people. These are common folks. Folks that'll never make a difference in this world. Folks that will labor and and raise their family and die. And Jesus says to them, you, you, you are the light of the world. Now, wait, 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 wait a second. We're still trying to get up to speed with you being the light of the world. And, and yeah, you can do some stuff so that, but hey, hey, do you see us? Do you know, you're saying we are the light of the world? It's like, like, are you saying we're part of the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah? And we're, come on. See that hill? See the city on top? You can't put a city on the hill and hide it. And likewise, none of you would ever light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. Right. No, it's just the opposite. You light the lamp and put it on the stand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. So, so. So in the same way, let your light shine before everybody so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Yeah, I'm the light of the world. I'm the fulfillment of the prophecy. But that plays out in your life as you reflect the light. And it's not just this little light of mine. No, no, no. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says, and we all with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of God with ever-increasing glory. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, you shine like stars in the universe. I mean, a star that you can see from who knows how many light years away. You're not just this little candle. You are a light in this world. In Ephesians 5, verse 8, he would say this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Live this light. And this is where some of us, I think, start saying, okay, yeah, that's kind of like the Christmas time of year. We're supposed to be, you know, filled with, you know, Christmas, whatever it might be. And that's why we put a little bit of money in the bucket for the Salvation Army and bring the gift of grub and kind of hold a door for someone. That's that's all good. And 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 just, you know, this time of year, we're we're supposed to just kind of be a little bit more up, thinking of others, kind of stuff. Listen, this is not just a seasonal thing. And it's going beyond spreading holiday cheer. Listen, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, a, I'm not a Scrooge. Please do that. But it goes beyond that. It's, it's more than just, you know, the best way to spread the cheer, Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Wonderful. Let's do that. Wednesday night, let's sing loud. Let's say, wonderful. But it goes beyond that. I think part of the problem is sometimes we begin to miss really the reason for the season. And I know, in the church, there's you no know, reason for the season, and we're down on everybody, the secular, you know, taking Christ out of Christmas, and the materialism, and I get all the commercial, I get all that. What I wonder is, is it possible that we in the church have missed the reason for the season? Because the reason for the season has always, always been about blessing. About blessing. Now, let's just push pause. Because some of you right now are going, oh, because you look at those blanks and you try to anticipate where I'm going and you put the name Jesus in there because that's the Sunday school answer for everything. (laughs) Don't cross Jesus out. Just say, and blessing, I was wrong. Okay, just let's get it by on that. The whole reason for the season is blessing. Let's go back like we did last year, last week. Not just back to... The manger scene, not just back to the prophecies. To the beginning, when darkness covered the face of the earth and God said, let there be light. Day five, it says that God creates the, the creatures of the sea and all that swim in its waters and the birds of the air and all that fly about. And at the end of day five, that's as he creates all these creatures and the birds and the, and the fish, he says, it is good and God blessed them. Day six. God says, let us make man in our image, and in his image he made them, male and female he made them. It is good, and it says, and God blessed them. Day seven, completion of the the creation account, he rests, and God so loves us, it says that God blessed the seventh day. We have a God from creation on who just loves to bless. This whole idea of blessing, blessing, you see it 400 times in the Old Testament. And you and I were created in the image of the God who loves to bless, and since we're created in the image of a God who loves to bless, we are not only blessees, but we are blessers. And when we love to bless and when we bless others, we look a whole lot more like our Father. This is first laid out with with Abraham. I mean, he's a part of the Christmas story, too, way back. Another one of these uh, situations in the Christmas story, which seems to be a a repeated theme of he and his wife are not able to have any kids. But God comes to him and gives him this promise in Genesis chapter 12 when he says to him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. He says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation. And again, they wait. And wait. And wait. And the calendars and the years and the decades go by to where it's like, I'm giving up on that great nation. Maybe we should have shot for like a tribe or a family or an offspring. And you're gonna bless me and I'm gonna be a great nation. And he goes on and he says, and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So I'm gonna bless you and you're gonna be a blessing. And not only that, He just paints this huge picture. He says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is how God ordains the blessing. God who loves to bless. The blessings come from him. Every blessing that we have is a gift of his grace. They flow to us, but that's not where they stop. His blessings flow to us so that we can then bless as well. Blessing those around us. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show, um, hoarders, and don't point to someone if you're married to one. But hoarders, these, these people that they just accumulate more and more, and they collect. They won't throw anything away. They won't get. Any, they won't get rid of anything. I think sometimes we become blessing hoarders. Just bless me, God. Give me more blessings. I want more blessings. I want to accumulate more blessings. I'm, I'm just get to see how many blessings can I get and hold on to. That, that's not the purpose of being blessed. Just to see how blessed I can be. See, the reason for the season has always been about blessing, and it's always been about blessing others. That we would be a conduit, that God's blessings would come to us, but then we would pass them on. And I think for us, many times, we short-circuit the whole thing. Because when you think about being a blessing, or even this passage from Abra- from about Abraham from Genesis 12 of blessing the whole earth, we overthink it. We overcomplicate it. Well, I I need to get more blessings before I can. I need to store up my blessings first. I don't have very many blessings. Or I I, I need to do something big, and I'm I'm never going to do that. And we overthink it. Could it be that it's far more simple than that? Mark Buchanan writes about a group of children who were asked what love means. And love is very very much connected to blessing. Rebecca, age 8, said this. When my grandmother got arthritis... She could not bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does this for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's blessing. Billy, age four said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know your name is safe in their mouth. Maybe blessing. Is painting toenails. Maybe blessing is being a place where someone's name is safe in your mouth. Maybe it's those simple, small things. You take Mary; she's a big part of the Christmas story. When Gabriel shows up to her, what is it? He says, "You are highly favored of the Lord." I mean, to have that from an angel—that's got to be pretty heady. An angel says, "You're highly favored of the Lord." When she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, and I love this part of the story. It rarely gets preached on. She goes to see her her relative Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And it says, when Mary walks into the house, John the Baptist does a gainer in the womb. He, He leaps, and then it says, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says in her warehouse voice, in a loud voice, blessed are you amongst women. Here's this woman who's highly favored of God and blessed. And yet, look at how she identifies herself in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. What if we had that identity? God, you've blessed me, but I'm your servant. Are there toenails that need to be painted? Are there names that need to be said? Is there an ear that needs to be heard? Is there a shoulder to cry? on? Is there someone that just needs a smile and encouragement? Someone to come alongside someone to help out. And Paul does this thing in Philippians 2, this "If, then." He says, "If, if you have any encouragement from being let's try that again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and it's a rhetorical question, because if you don't have encouragement from being united with Christ, I question if you're united with Christ. If you have any comfort from his love any fellowship with his spirit, any tenderness or compassion. He says, then make my joy complete, being like my... And he talks about unity. And then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others more important than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, blessing, 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 but also to the interest of others. And then in verse 5, Like, he drops the Jesus card. Your attitude, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then what most scholars believe is he quotes what what very possibly could have been a hymn of the earliest church. And he talks about Jesus, and it's the Christmas story. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, the omnipotent, the all-knowing, the infinite, the eternal God, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, poured himself out. And look at this, taking the very nature of a servant. Maybe that's what it means to bless Maybe that's what it means to be the light of the world, to see ourselves as servants, recipients of God's blessing, and a conduit to bless the world and fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. So how do we do that? I think that what we need, first and foremost, is to just joyfully receive the blessings of God. I mean, we are so unbelievably blessed. They're so common to us that we don't always see them. To look for them, to acknowledge them, to thank God for them, to embrace them, to celebrate them. You're so blessed. We're so blessed in so many arenas. And to just make it a discipline to intentionally find the blessings of God. I mean, I grew up in a church where we used to sing this old song about count your many blessings, name them one by one. Just be reminded of this. You'll be surprised at what the Lord has done. You know, James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. We ought to just be praising God from whom all blessings flow. Okay, I've lulled some of you to sleep. It's time for a ninth inning stretch. Not seventh, I'm almost done. Stand up, ninth inning stretch. Here we go, come on. See, even trying to get you out of your chair is difficult. There we go, wake her up. All right, here we go, ninth inning stretch. Some of you need to help me out a lot. Some of you may not know this, but the rest of you, I need you to help me out with a great deal of volume. Can I get that from you? If I don't, I'll just keep preaching. Praise God from whom all blessings below. A little more volume. Praise Him, all creatures in the host. Yeah. Praise, Praise Him Abba above the heavenly, heavenly host. Praise it's Father, your Son, and Holy Ghost. Make this good. Much better than take me out to the ball game. You may be seated. That's it. Is. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They flow from him to us and through us. And then as we recognize that, as we acknowledge that, then to just say, I want to joyfully bless as many people as I can and just to wake up every day, God, I'm your servant. Who is it you're going to bring across my path? How can I be a blessing to them? Big or small ways. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe it is holding a door. Maybe it is helping out financially. I don't know, but I just want to be a blessing. And what if we got just serious about being generous as blessers, as serious as we've been about receiving the blessings of God? What if we just go Oprah on this one? You get a blessing. You get a blessing. You all get blessings. That we just become this Teflon conduit. Where we receive the blessings of God. We live in those blessings and we just pass them on. One more little side thing. I don't have time, so I'll just like, if you file this one away. Our God who loves to bless does not wait until people deserve to be blessed before he blesses them. Now, I am out of time. Thank you. (laughs) About the only time I get an amen. But I'm gonna give you the bonus round. Here it is, I'll do it quick. We are blessed, we are blessed by being a blessing. It's the reciprocal way that God has ordained this whole thing. Yes, we receive the blessings from God. Yes, we are called to bless others. And when we do that, we ourselves are the ones who are blessed. There's a statement that has made its way into our culture. There, There are these statements and sometimes we don't even know who said them. We're not even sure if there are these pithy little statements. I mean, you know these statements. There's all kinds of them. We're not sure where the source is. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness, which I'm not sure if I believe that. But, you know, or no pain, no gain. And you know, we just say, 15 minutes could save you 15%. You know, these kind of statements. Everyone just knows these statements. There's another statement that is used. It's one of these ubiquitous statements, and I think most people are not aware that it came from Jesus. And my guess is that even some Christians would say, Jesus said that? In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, this is our Lord, is more blessed to give than to receive. You've been so blessed. Your Father loves to bless you. You're made in his image bless others and when you do that you'll be doubly blessed what if we lived that truth not just during the christmas season but every day and the people that god brings into our lives and might i suggest when there's someone that comes into your life and it seems to be an interruption oh could it be that that happened because god wants you to bring a little light into their darkness That person that frustrates you that you can hardly stand and just like, oh, could it be that they've come into your life so that you could shine a little of the light of Christ into their life? That we, following the light of the world, we would be part of the fulfillment of that prophecy to bring light into our dark, fear-filled, gloom-filled world. You are the light of the world.